George W. Bush was directly confronted at a Los Angeles speaking engagement by an Iraq war veteran who said that he was personally responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. Haitian migrants who were forced to flee Haiti in the aftermath of the huge 2010 earthquake are being brutalized and deported by the United States during the era of Joe Biden. And activists will stage nationwide protests this weekend against the looming wave of evictions. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News. This is our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. It's September 21st, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program and subscribing and sign up for our patrons only seminar, which will be held this Wednesday, September 22nd at 7 PM Eastern 4 PM Pacific time. I will be speaking about the U S war in Afghanistan, looking back at the last 20 years and the complexities of building an anti-war and socialist movement inside the United States. We'll take questions beforehand and live as we go. I'm here with Esther Averam. Walter Smolarik and Nicole Roussel are out today. Esther Averam is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weeklies on Friday. Esther, we're back, but without Walter and Nicole, so we'll have to sort of hold the fort while they're gone. Well, we'll be fine, Brian. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take your word for that. Um, we have a lot to cover. I, you know, I did an interview yesterday with Mike Preisner and Marissa Sanchez following the really amazing confrontation that they staged when George W. Bush was speaking at a Beverly Hills venue. I think, by the way, as I talked to them, Bush makes about somewhere between $100,000 and $175,000 per speech. Hmm. So we talked about that, and we're going to play that interview but let's start with some other stories real quick. We're in the middle of a new surge of Delta 19 variant of COVID. It's spreading. We also are hearing over and over again that workers are not available, that there's a labor shortage. And so the government has taken away people's supplemental unemployment benefits or extended unemployment benefits as a way to force low-paid workers to go back to these jobs. The government is basically arguing, you know, the working class is getting too much and thus they don't want to come back to work. So they're taking away benefits. But there's some amazing stories about the real reason people are not coming back to work. There's several of them in the media. Let's start there. Right. So I want to start with the whole issue of childcare workers. Childcare workers are quitting rapidly. And you know, as we've discussed on the show, while there's a loss of workers in many industries like restaurants, the loss of childcare workers has a much larger ripple effect, meaning that if childcare services have to scale back or close, women with young children cannot return to work. We've talked about this in relationship to the Biden administration's plan to build back better and to invest in childcare and other types of senior care to help working families and particularly working mothers get back to work. So according to a Washington Post story by Heather Long, the numbers are staggering, she says. The child care services industry is still down 126,000 workers, more than a 10% decline from pre-pandemic levels. And she's looking at Labor Department data. And so it's obvious that 
the crisis in childcare exacerbated by the pandemic is just highlighting the failure of capitalism to provide the basic necessities for families or even to allow the capitalist system to work. It is the so-called market-based solution being allowed to basically cannibalize the whole system. The article, and you know, that's me saying that. She doesn't say that in the Washington Post. But the article says, quote, nearly 1.6 million moms of children under 17 are still missing from the labor force. They dropped out during the pandemic to care for children and have not been able to return to work as the school and daycare situation remains chaotic especially for unvaccinated children under the age of 12. There are still COVID outbreaks occurring at schools and some childcare centers and after-school programs remain closed or they are accepting fewer children, end quote. So Brian, I was thinking about how when I first started working as an organizer or an activist, and I could be in high school or in college, and, you know, all the veteran organizers always included childcare as a real necessary component of any action or event around ending apartheid at that time, or of course, around International Working Women's Day. And, you know, that was a really important lesson for me as a young activist, because it was a way of tying in the work that we were doing to the type of society that we wanted to create. And childcare was an important part of that. You know, when I looked at how other countries, socialist countries or even social democratic countries handled childcare, because this is the beginning of a child's education and the beginning of what kind of citizen you're raising to be in your country. And not only that, it's showing the kind of value you have for children. So according to a 2017 report by the Brookings Institute, one of the big kind of mainstream centrist think tanks here in D.C., the U.S. ranks dead last among developed nations on a measure of affordability for child care. So the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services concludes that affordable child care should not exceed 7% of family income. But the Brookings report says that there's only one state in the nation, Louisiana, which meets that cost-centered based standard for child care. So one estimate they cite is that the average weekly cost of full-time daycare at $196 per child or about $10,000 per year. And then other estimates are much higher. And of course, the costs vary according to geography, locale, the age of the child, and the form of child care. And then they say, for example, full-time center-based child care for one infant or toddler ranges from $5,000 a year in Mississippi to over $22,000 a year in Washington, D.C. And obviously here in our area in D.C., that cost of child care would be more than a salary of a worker in these low-paid jobs that they want everyone to like rush back to and take. So the pandemic has created, you know, this whole new ecosystem where many workplaces have had to raise salaries to that minimum bar of $15 an hour or more to attract workers. And these childcare workers are, in many cases, are taking some of these higher paid jobs rather than make, you know, $11 an hour or less and expose themselves to COVID and deal with all the stresses that they have in terms of taking care of young children and, you know, with very low pay and no benefits. So that's one story. And related to that, I want to mention another story by Abba Batarai. And she wrote back in June that retail workers similarly are ditching their jobs. And maybe for the same reason, okay, they are working at maybe some of these big box stores and they're making, you know, well under $15 an hour, maybe 10, maybe 11. And they are finding jobs that pay more, that are less stressful. And in many cases they can work from home. So like I said, I think the pandemic has created this whole no ecosystem where low paid Workers are either finding better jobs, jobs that they can do from home, jobs that pay them more, that have more benefits. And very often they are also leaving the workforce to maybe go back to school 
or until they have a better childcare situation. Because as we said, you know, childcare just isn't there, despite the fact that there were funds set aside in March under the American Rescue Plan. But these funds, just like unemployment funds were slow to go out, just like the funds to curb evictions to help people pay their rent, to help small scale housing providers pay their mortgages, just like those funds haven't gone out. I think the article mentioned that only 14 states had applications up and running so childcare centers can apply for funding. So, you know, the system is broken, not only in terms of the ability to provide public funding for childcare, affordable childcare, but also when these funds are allocated, they're not going out and they're not being utilized by the states. So, when you say we need a new system, this is like, you know, proof positive one that we need a new system. Yeah, we do. And, you know, I want to encourage people to go to the Washington Post story by Heather Long. The headline is sort of unusual for the Washington Post. Here it is. Quote, the pay is absolute crap, close quote. Childcare workers are quitting rapidly, a red flag for the economy. And then, as you mentioned, 126,000 fewer workers in childcare than at the start of the pandemic 18 months ago. And they start with this one little early childhood program in Weymouth, Massachusetts called South Shore Stars. They haven't had one new applicant for a job in the last six months. And the problem, according to the director, Jennifer Curtis, is that daycare workers typically make about $12 an hour, which is lower than or about the same as the minimum wage was in 1968 when Dr. King organized the Poor People's Campaign, $12 an hour for a demanding job. It's not easy taking care of kids. And there's a nearby Dunkin's that starting pay is at $14 an hour. So guess what? Low-paid workers would rather work at Dunkin' Donuts serving coffee than having to take care of children for $2 less an hour. Anyway, amazing. And as you also said, that other story, what was it? 650000 workers in retail gave notice. Again, if the U.S. capitalist system treats workers like this, if they treat childcare like a commodity and a commodity that's only there you know, to make profit from, these kind of problems are going to affect the working class. And then as a consequence, now the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal are worried because it could, quote, have an impact on the economy. Well, what about the impact on human beings? Anyway, let's turn to another story real quick. Esther, talking about the impact on human beings, a terrible situation for migrants, mass deportations going on of Haitians at the U.S.-Mexico border. Many of these folks escaped catastrophe, basically, after the 2010 huge earthquake in Haiti. And here you have scenes, just gross, obscene scenes of people being deported by the U.S. en masse. And the Haitian government is also protesting. Absolutely. So uh, I'm looking at Yahoo News from Monday, and it said that the Biden administration will prioritize all single adult Haitians and some Haitian families for deportation, and that one to three flights were being carried out every day since the weekend to deport people to Haiti. And this is happening as there have been these news reports, you know, like, you could call them safe, sensational, but very much slanted away from it being a humanitarian crisis as opposed to it being kind of this invasion by Haitians down at this town, Del Rio, on the border. And unfortunately, what's happened is that because of the crises that you even mentioned, the recent assassination of the Haitian president, the earthquake, back-to-back storms in Haiti. Many of these things are further, you know, fueling this surge in migrants coming from Haiti. But, you know, when I've listened to a lot of advocates for not only Haitian migrants, but also the undocumented people in general, they talk about how this wave of Haitian migrants really started several years ago when Haitians were building the various Olympics stadiums and different facilities for the Olympics in Rio 
in Brazil. And then after the Olympics facilities were built, it was like, oh, we don't need you anymore. And, you know, get out, get out of Brazil. And so there has been this kind of slow migration up from Brazil, up through South America, and finally ending in Mexico since then. And so you've had the steady wave of migrants coming up from that construction project and that big work opportunity that people had. And when they get to the border, they have established different communities in Mexico and that's created problems. And so many of them are like winding up now in this town in Del Rio and the Biden administration's solution is to have these increased number of flights back to Haiti. In the meantime, there are images of border officials or state police, whoever they are, you know, like lashing whips at these people, trying to catch them or trying to corral them. I don't know whether they want to arrest them or they're trying to detain them. So Ilhan Omar is one lawmaker who is speaking out saying Monday that the images of the border patrol agents on horseback whipping migrants, Haitian migrants attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border were basically, you know, human rights abuses. And she says, quote, these are human rights abuses, plain and simple, cruel, inhumane, and a violation of domestic and international law. And she said that in a tweet. And so a lot of people in the Black community, you know, I was just listening to one of the local stations here on Monday, people are up in arms about this, you know, at the same time that we are treating people in this cruel way and deporting them at the same time they want to bring in, you know, all these refugees from Afghanistan. And the thing is, it creates this competition of the people that we have exploited, right? So I'm not trying to say it's wrong to bring in people from Afghanistan, but a lot of people in the black community are looking at it and seeing the really two-faced nature of this that Haitians are being treated this way at the same time that there are all these articles written by liberals, by people in the Democratic Party about how Afghanistan refugees need to be welcomed and we need to do more. Yeah, this is really an important story. We have to continue to build solidarity with the immigrant workers who are coming from Haiti, from Central America, from all over the world Again, there's the push and pull of immigration. It's not just a push and it's not just a pull. But in the case of the Haitians, you know, many of these people who are being deported and being deported to Haiti haven't been in Haiti since, you know, the earthquake. And so many of them who are like 15 years old or 16 years old, they've spent most of their life somewhere else, basically as refugees. Again, We're going to come back and talk more about Haiti. It's a big issue. It's not just about the migration. It's not just about the role of governance, but the U.S.-Haitian relationship. You know, but also I think that this is definitely related to our first story because many undocumented workers form part of the workforce that is not here to fill these jobs. And the Trump administration, and not just the Trump administration, but, you know, of course, Obama was known as the deporter in chief. So we've had a drain of workers from this country who used to fill these jobs. And so that's kind of like a missing piece that isn't discussed, but that's only increased and worsened during the pandemic also. Let's turn to another story on Sunday night. Organizers with the Answer Coalition confronted George W. Bush when he was speaking in Beverly Hills. Mike Preisner, an Iraq anti-war veteran, and Marissa Sanchez, another organizer with Answer Coalition in Los Angeles, were able to go inside while Bush was speaking. And then Mike Preisner was able to challenge Bush about his crimes. Outside, there was a demonstration a very, very important intervention. And people all over the world took note of it. It's gone viral on Twitter and other social media. I had an interview with Mike Preisner and Marissa Sanchez yesterday. I want to play that interview before we come back to our final stories. Now we're joined by Mike Preisner, Iraq war veteran, and Marissa Sanchez, two organizers with the Answer Coalition, They also had the opportunity to go in where George W. Bush was speaking in Los Angeles and let them know what they thought. Mike, Marissa, welcome to the Socialist Program. Great to be back, Ryan. Thank you for having us. 
Well, congratulations. You know, we're recording this show on Monday at a little bit after two o'clock Eastern time. Last night was the event where George W. Bush spoke in Los Angeles at 7 p.m. Both of you were inside. Mike, as an Iraq war veteran, you got up, you confronted George W. Bush about his war crimes. You attempted to read a list of names of U.S. military personnel who were killed and the names of Iraqis who were killed in this war that was based on lies. You told him it was based on lies. You demanded that he apologize. Anyway, let's just set the stage. Where were you? What happened? By the way, the recording that Marissa made of you disrupting or confronting George W. Bush, I mean, as of this time, it has like 135,000 views. I'm certain by the time we air this episode tomorrow, it'll be like around 200,000 views. Anyway, people are very excited about what both of you did, but let's just set the stage for where you were and how you got there and what your plans were. Sure. Well, you know, I was quite surprised actually to see that Bush was speaking as a part of what's called the Distinguished Speaker Series, which has some kind of innocuous speakers, but Bush kind of stood out on this program. You know, we had called uh, demonstrations here at the event in Beverly Hills and the event in Long Beach. It's really been a while since Bush has done events like this. In fact, it really wasn't until the Trump administration that kind of revived Bush's image and he was able to start doing, you know, celebrity style media rounds and public events and so forth. And so, you know, we immediately, as soon as we saw he was speaking in the Southern California area, called demonstrations for both of the events. But then I just out of curiosity, went to see if there were tickets available. And probably pretty embarrassing for Bush, there was a lot of tickets still available for both events, like hundreds of seats were unfilled. And the event that we were at was maybe 80% capacity, lots and lots of empty seats. So, you know, tickets, of course, were expensive. They were starting at $500. I think the most expensive ticket was like 2000 for good seating. But, you know, I felt that we had a real responsibility to not just protest outside the event, but to try to make Bush know that his past will continue to haunt him until he makes some attempts to make amends, which, of course, nobody expects to happen. So our plan was, of course, this was a team effort. I could not have done this alone. Marissa and I began coordinating about how we could do this together. You know, initially when we bought the tickets, Marissa was supposed to be sitting like a row ahead of me so she could film me without anyone knowing that she was associated with me so that it would be once she filmed, she could get the video out without them taking the phone and deleting it. They had a strict no recording, no electronic devices rule at the venue precisely for this type of thing. But once we got there, they had switched our seats. And so we were sitting next to each other. And then there is nobody else in the row where we were seated. And so our plans of being difficult to get to by security and for Marissa to be incognito went out the window. So we both fully expected that we would be arrested. Marissa for filming me and obviously being part of the action and then me for disrupting. So we, of course, had to put on nice outfits, blend into the crowd and... You know, this is this very fancy theater in Beverly Hills. The demographic at the event is, I guess, what you would expect. By the way, I, you both look very nice. Really, really well dressed. Why, thank you. <laughs> I don't get many reasons to put on a suit these days, but that was a decent one to be in camouflage, if you will. So, yeah, so, you know, it was this conversation type program where there is two chairs on the stage, Bush was sitting there, and then a host or MC of the event was basically interviewing him live in front of the crowd. And, you know, we didn't intend to sit through much of it. So as soon as Bush launched into his first story, you know, this kind of silly story about his life where he made a a joke about like living in a bathroom with prostitutes when he was a kid, which I don't I didn't get the joke. I, I'm sure that's not a real story. So he started off with these like off color jokes like that. And then, you know, Marissa and I decided that that was a good time to start. It was a lot of pressure on Marisa because, of course, getting the recording is, of course, very important. And so we expected that her phone would just get taken and the video would be deleted. And so she was, maybe you can explain this part, Marissa, but, you know, you had some challenges in being able to get the recording. And you're even, you can hear your voice in the video with the organizers confronting you, asking if you are with me. Let's hear the video and then Marissa will get your take. Let's hear it. Of course, uh, it was round two. 
Mr. Bush, when are you going to apologize for the million Iraqis that are dead because you lied? You lied about weapons of mass destruction. You lied about connections to 9-11. You lied about Iraq being a threat. You sent me to Iraq. You sent me to Iraq in 2003. My friends are dead. Joshua Castile, you, you killed people. You lied. You lied about WMDs. A million Iraqis are dead because you lied. My friends are dead because you lied. You need to apologize. Apologize. Okay, and then at the end of that remarkable intervention, you can also hear on the recording the the people who are trying to toss you out. And people can go to Twitter and see the video itself that Marissa filmed. But Marissa, they come up to you and they say, are you with him? And you were like, no. (laughs) Anyway, talk about the experience for you. Have you done something like this before? Yeah, well, um, no, no, I haven't. I, you know, I've been organizing with Answer Coalition for a number of years, but this was the first time to be involved in like this particular type of activity. And, you know, I really like Mike. And of course, it doesn't feel good to say, no, I'm not, I'm not with him. But just to the point he was making earlier, I was really thinking about the recording. And the folks were so upset that we had disrupted this event. I was, you know, not certain, but thinking, you know, high potential for us to actually get arrested and was really thinking about this tape and needing to get it out, you know, send it out so that it would, you know, be available for us. And I'm pretty inexperienced in Twitter. So honestly, wasn't 100% sure that it was streaming off of Mike's phone as I was recording it on my own phone as well. And yeah, so then when they were asking me if I was with him, I was saying no. And then the woman who had grabbed Mike, like also grabbed me, like grabbed my wrists and was like pulling me out of the seat. And at that point I stopped recording and just very like briskly walked past, you know, security and the cops and made it back out onto the street where the demonstration was happening. But yeah, they were, as I was walking out saying, arrest her, like, did you just let him go? And you know, to their disappointment. Oh my God, they said that? Yeah, yeah. Oh goodness, I did not know. Yeah, so to their disappointment, as they were saying arrest her, I was thinking, oh my gosh, did they really arrest Mike? And then, you know, they were like, no, we just let him go. And she was very disappointed by that information. Do either of you know how much George W. Bush got paid for the speech last night? I don't. I know that it must have been decent. I want to give you a number. I don't know the answer either, but I want to tell you what his average speaking fee salary is. Do either of you want to guess? Marissa, take a quick guess. Oh man, I'm so bad at saying big numbers. I mean, what, he's got to be making 10 grand off of this thing? Does he make 10 grand? 10 grand, okay. Okay, Mike? I feel it has to be six figures, which sounds absurd, but I'm going to guess $100,000. Okay, I'm looking at thoughtco.com. That's T-H-O-U-G-H-T-C-O.com. The article is, what do former presidents make when they speak? George W. Bush's average salary is $175,000 per speech, Mm. between $100,000 and $175,000. So he made at least six figures there. Mm. And when you think about it, by the way, Obama makes even more, Clinton makes Mm -hmm. more. Clinton's average speech is $750,000 per speech. Bush's uh, D-list then, huh? Yeah, he's D-list. Barack Obama, $400,000. These are the people who are making sure that every year the military budget goes to, well, higher and higher, but the real military budget is about a trillion dollars when you look at all the different places that so-called defense spending actually exists in the federal budget. But when you think about it, Mike, you're demanding from Bush that he apologize. And you say, my friends died. You sent me to Iraq based on lies. A million Iraqis died. And you have this guy who did all of this speaking on Sunday night in Los Angeles for somewhere between $100,000 and $175,000. I mean, let's just talk about this because the U.S. always tells the rest of the world, this is the greatest democracy. We're a rules-based order or the rule of law. But can you imagine? I mean. It's just so obscene. Yeah, you know, and there's so many things that one could say to George W. Bush. And so it was, of course, a challenge in the days leading up. You know, I knew I was going to have very limited time. And that 
our strategy was to be able to have more time. You know, we bought seats that were in the very middle of the row, anticipating that that would lengthen the time it would take security to get to me, to drag me out. But, you know, as I mentioned, there is all empty seats next to me. And so they just had a security had a clear shot to me as soon as I started disrupting. So the idea of, of demanding that he apologize was actually inspired by someone named Thomas Young, who was a Iraq war veteran who was paralyzed early in the Iraq war. And, you know, once he came home was, to my knowledge, the only veteran with a disability like that who became a fighter in the anti-war movement. And he eventually succumbed to his wounds. I mean, he died in 2014 from complications from his injury. He kind of slowly died over a period of 10 years after his injury, was a an anti-war fighter, particularly against Bush, and was always demanding that Bush meet with him and would go to places like Bush's ranch and so forth with a sign demanding that Bush meet with him and talk to him and see the impact of his injuries. And right before he died, he wrote a letter, what was to be his last letter, knowing that his death was imminent. And that letter always really stuck with me. And it's something I think about quite a bit. And in that letter, he basically says, you know, my day of reckoning is upon me. Yours will come. And my one wish is that before your time on earth ends, you have the moral courage to stand before the world and especially the Iraqi people and beg for your forgiveness. And so it was in that spirit, that message I wanted to relay. I, I guess I basically thought what, you know, family members of Iraqis who were killed and Americans who were killed would want. And an apology is a small place to start. But just thinking back to Thomas Young's letter, and how much it impacted me. That's what inspired it. And, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get to read the names. That was the first thing that was grabbed out of my hand and was ripped up as I was trying to read them. I did get to read one name, which you hear on the recording, and I think it's a fitting one, someone that everyone should learn about. His name was Joshua Castile, was a friend of mine. And he was a great person. He was in the Iraq war early on, like I was, and then became a conscientious objector and then was kicked out of the military for refusing to go back to Iraq. But he died at age 33 from an aggressive brain cancer that he got from burn pits. And the reason it's a fitting name to start with is because Bush's legacy in Iraq isn't just that he lied you know, to send us to war and responsible for the death of all these people. Of course, that's his biggest legacy. But this way of making Iraq a money-making operation and those burn pits, which were run by like KBR and Halliburton, where they were just burning trash with this like high temperature fuel, which was completely unsafe. More soldiers are going to die from burn pit exposure than were killed in combat in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I mean, that's how many deaths we're anticipating from the brain cancers that come from this really a profit making operation. And so that's the one name that I got to read. And that was going to be followed by in the same vein, all of the Iraqis who were killed in the Nisor Square massacre, again, by a private corporation, Blackwater, that was handed, you know, something like $20 billion to do so-called security in Iraq, which was really what happened at Nisor Square, which is just driving around shooting people for fun on the streets. And so the list, of course, was mostly Iraqis who were killed in various massacres, some whose death we watched in the collateral murder video that the world saw, mostly Iraqi children, you know, the youngest on the list is age four. But, you know, when I reference that my friends are dead because of you, you know, I was lucky enough that none of my friends on my deployment were killed. I mean, several were injured. And, you know, one of my friends had a very serious injury and others very serious psychological injuries. But the thing that about the Iraq war is that all of my friends who died from the war, it happened afterwards, either by suicide, by overdose, by complications from injuries like Thomas Young or Joshua Castile. And so the list of Americans that I had, it was both people who came back from Iraq and became activists in the anti-war struggle and leaders in the anti-war fight who then died of suicide or other scars of the war, people like Samantha Owen Ewing and others. But also I had on the list the children of parents who were killed 
And then their parents went and formed the anti-war organization Gold Star Families for Peace. And so many may know Casey Sheehan, the son of Cindy Sheehan, who then started Camp Casey at Bush's Ranch, which became a huge magnet for anti-war organizing. Alexander Arandondo, the son of a man named Carlos Arandondo, who became a very important anti-war figure, taking the coffin of his son around the country for everyone to see. People like Michael Mitchell and Evan Ashcroft, whose parents became founding members of Gold Star Families for Peace. And so I wanted to honor them, and I wanted their names to be remembered in that setting. And other names of Americans I had, so many of my friends who I've met in the anti-war movement who are Iraq vets, you know, most of them had close friends killed in Iraq. And so they reached out to me and asked me to read their names as well. And so there's many names on there of their death became the radicalizing moment for them that turned them against the war and led them to become conscientious objectors and so forth. And so the last thing I'll say about this is that the room, of course, booed me. People were very mad. I was very quickly attacked by the event organizers. And there was a great contrast between the people in that room and the lives that they live, you know, being able to afford those nice tickets, going to fancy Beverly Hills events, and the names of the people on the list of the Iraqis who were just massacred, uh, their families who will never know a day of peace. And then the soldiers who, you know, the ones I knew and the ones whose parents I knew or families I knew or friends I knew, whose lives are still in chaos and are still reeling from the impact of Bush's decisions that he gets to, you know, the biggest irony is that not only does he get away with it, but he actually makes a lot of money selling a book full of paintings of American service members who died in Iraq. So, Mike, let me just ask you real quick. Since you couldn't read all the names, you were dragged out of that hall where can people look at those names? So I think the at answercoalition.org, publishing the statement that I wrote about the disruption, and then I have the list there. Of course, it's a short list overall because, I mean, to try to encapsulate Iraqis who were killed, I mean, it's difficult because about a million died. And so to try to condense it into this small list, of course, it's not fully representative. But I knew I wasn't going to be able to read very many names. And so I wanted to, the list was a realistic length for what I thought I could get through. But as you saw, I, I got through one name. Yeah. You know, one thing, one irony, you mentioned the movie collateral murder, the WikiLeaks revelations of, you know, the massacre of civilians by U.S. helicopter pilots. Here we have Julian Assange is in prison. Julian Assange is in prison because he told us and he told the world what was actually happening with Bush's war in Iraq. And he's in prison because he told the truth. And you have George W. Bush going around the country. And Marissa, he's been going around the country for a long time, making these speeches. Politico, I want to go back to the money element. Politico documented, Politico, of course, is the Washington news source here in Washington that pays attention to Washington politics. They documented Bush's appearances on the speaking circuit and found that he's been the keynote speaker in at least 200 events since leaving office so again, we want to do the math here. If he's making, let's say, just $100,000 per speech, just that number, and he's got 200 events, that means he's made $20 million from these kind of speeches, $20 million. And if it was the higher number, the $175,000 per speech, according to Politico, that means he's raked in about $35 million in speaking fees since he left office. And he is responsible for all of these things. He's spoken in private settings. He's spoken convention centers. He's spoken hotel ballrooms, resorts, casinos from Canada to Asia, to New York City, to Miami, all over Texas, where he lives, to Las Vegas, playing his part. This is from Politico in what has become a lucrative staple of the modern post-presidency. Now, Marissa, you're an anti-war organizer. You're also a social justice activist. You're with the Answer Coalition. When you think about the obscenity of George W. Bush making somewhere between 20 and $35 million for making these inane, ridiculous speeches, 200 of them since 2009, that's all he has to do to make $20 million to $35 million. And then we know that right now, because the Congress refused to act, and because the Supreme Court, by a slim majority, decided to end the eviction moratorium, that about somewhere between 11 and 15 million people in the United States are about to be kicked out of their homes 
because there's not the money needed to subsidize you know, rent debt. The amount owed by renters in total is about $65 billion, which is about 8% of the military budget. So we have a society that says, look, we're going to keep building more bombs, more missiles. We have drone bases all over the world. We can spend limitless resources for this. And the people who take us to war, even if it's based on lies, they can make 20 to $35 million from 200 speaking engagements. And at the same time, this week, this week, people are going to lose their homes. And I know you're involved in a nationwide effort this coming weekend, September 24th to 26th, where people all over the country, including families who are being evicted, are coming together to stage protests. Anyway, let's just talk about that issue, if we could. Yeah, most definitely. Well, I think one thing, too, just to say, you know, Mike mentioned that Bush was making this, like, very odd joke about, yeah, growing up around prostitutes in a bathroom. It was strange. But the other thing that he said, which I was so glad that we were very quick to disrupt him because he was making this joke about, and who knows how true this was, having at some point lived briefly in Compton. And the moderator said, okay, so you're straight out of Compton then. And, you know, ha ha. But, you know, when you think about where does Bush feel safe to go on these speaking tours, like you said, Brian, he's speaking in Beverly Hills. Like that's where he spoke last night. He knows that there's no real venue for him to speak at in Compton and that it can only be, you know, the butt of a poorly told joke by him. And to the point about the numbers, I mean, you know, when you look at the research that's been done on how much was spent on these wars that Bush lied about in order to send working class people, you know, overseas to die, be traumatized or never come home, I think looking at these numbers, it is really startling to think about them. I don't know. I always laugh because these giant numbers are so divorced from my own relived reality. I'm thinking if Bush is getting paid $10,000, like that's a pretty impressive take home. So it's always mind blowing to me to think, wow, like he's making six figures to do a speech like this. And, you know, even more mind blowing is that the war on terror costs $6.7 trillion dollars. There's a Brown University study that came out with that number, and we can look at that in comparison to the $67 billion that it would cost to pay everyone in the country's back rents. You know, anyone who owes back rent from during the pandemic could be paid off, and it would be, you know, a fraction of the cost, you know, 8% even of the U.S. military budget. And that's you know, a demand that we're raising and numbers that we're pointing to as we're organizing to demand a cancellation of rents and an indefinite eviction moratorium in an upcoming weekend of action that you mentioned, Brian, this weekend, the 24th through the 26th, where we'll be mobilizing across the country to make these demands known and to raise these numbers up as examples of, you know, just how money is being spent in our society to the benefit of, you know, a small minority of people versus the vast needs that we actually have. Right. Mike Preisner, again, I want to thank both you and Marissa for having carried out this really important anti-war action. I think it's so inspirational to people. Even while we've been speaking in the last few minutes, I'm looking at the ticker, the number of people who are looking at that video that Marissa took of you confronting Bush with the truth. That number is just going up and up and up. And that's because people want to fight back. People want to organize. And it's people across all kinds of parts of society, all walks of life, so to speak. They don't want this. They don't want a government spending trillions of dollars for war, for death and destruction. They're mortified. If they really knew if it was on mainstream corporate news tonight that George W. Bush, on the eve of a mass eviction wave, was making $175,000 to give an insipid, inane speech in Los Angeles at Beverly Hills, you know, people in the United States would be disgusted. They'd be completely, truly disgusted. But anyway, like to close on is that when you think about the war in Iraq, it was a war against poor people, basically. The war in Afghanistan, the U.S. government just took responsibility for the drone strike that killed that entire family, including seven kids, as the U.S. last act during the Afghanistan war. And the only reason the military spoke about it and the media you know, covered it was because it was in Kabul. It wasn't in the countryside where most of the war was fought. 
And it was right after this attack at the airport that killed 13 U.S. Marines, which became a political problem for Joe Biden. But if, you know, the U.S. wipes out an Afghan family, that's not a political liability. So these wars are wars really against poor people and poor countries. But as we've been talking about the way funds are allocated and the way money and resources are distributed in society, it's also a war against poor people here. I mean, Martin Luther King always made that point. The war in Vietnam, the bombs dropped in Southeast Asia were exploding in the inner cities of the United States, meaning you can't really have a real and effective war against poverty and at the same time, constant imperialist wars all over the world. Anyway, I want to just frame this that what you and what Marissa did was not only against war and not only against Bush's crimes, but it was highlighting the fact that all of these wars are actually wars against poor people here and abroad. That's right. And showing people that you can fight back even when the movement is in an ebb. You know, I came into political life when Bush was still president. And so, you know, going to anti-war demonstrations in the Bush years were quite inspiring. They were massive. I mean, they were in the hundreds of thousands. And so it was, in a way, easy to be an activist or an organizer at a time when, you know, people called a demonstration, you, you were going to a demonstration, you knew there were going to be many, many, many thousands of people going with you. It would be, you know, of course, easier to organize people to come in your family, your workplace, your school. You know, it was a different time. And that when, you know, things can get harder, you know, when Obama came in, the anti-war movement instantly took a massive dip. But that doesn't mean that that we can't continue to organize and fight and do actions that could be a spark for larger actions. You know, the demonstration at the Bush venue was not in the hundreds or the thousands of people, but it was strong nonetheless. The logistical support we had on the outside, which was organized by the Answer Coalition here in LA, was extremely important to have that component outside for all the people going in and to support me when I came out and to be prepared to run logistics if we were arrested and, and all of that. So it was a this bigger group effort, of course, but it can show that we people shouldn't be intimidated to think that they can't fight the eviction wave and all of these things just because there are not thousands of people pouring into the streets. And if you want to see thousands of people pouring into the streets, it requires actions like this. It requires small actions and small dedicated organizers that can create the spark that leads to bigger things. And so whatever people have the capacity to do, nothing is insignificant. It all makes a difference. It all plays a role. And if we realize that we can act in this capacity and have a lot of power as a small number of people who are determined, then that can turn into even bigger things, as we've seen in the past. And so many moments in the anti-war struggle under Bush were catalysts. They were small actions that then blew up into bigger ones. And we've seen that repeat time and time again, you know, even since the Bush years. Now, those are important words. And I can tell you as a longtime organizer, big actions never fall from the skies and arrive, you know, with a little bow tied around them. They come from lots of earlier activity, lots of earlier organizing, lots of times when people feel like they're banging their head up against a wall. But it's that small wheel, that small group, that small core of organizers who just keeps going. They're not only there when the sun is shining and the movement is huge, they're there when it's raining and the movement is small. They're the people who keep it going. And that's important because this is true about every viable social movement that has made real social change in the United States and anywhere in the world. It is really a law, a law of progressive organizing. Anyway, we were joined by Mike Preisner and Marissa Sanchez, who for all of us stood up to George W. Bush on Sunday, part of a larger anti-war mobilization, both organizers of the Answer Coalition. Thank you both for joining. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Esther, I think it was really important what Mike and Marissa and the other folks in the Answer Coalition did on Sunday. I think it's very important that George W. Bush, who's made between 20 and $35 million, that's what he's made in 200 different speaking appearances since he left office. In other words, he's gotten even richer. But in the meantime, a million Iraqis died, or about that number, thousands, tens of thousands of people in the United States, military lost their lives. 
you know, military veterans committing suicide. Just, I mean, all of it based on lies. And they also set up a torture program all around the world under Bush, Bush and Cheney. It wasn't just Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, Bagram Air Base. You know, CIA set up black sites. They said, as Cheney said, we're going to the dark side. Well, they set up torture everywhere. And then President Obama came in and everybody was so happy, meaning everybody who thought there was going to be a big change. Millions of people came to Obama's inauguration and they thought it's not just Bush who's leaving, but it's the Bush era that's leaving. But as soon as he came into office, when asked, are you going to hold Bush accountable, Bush and Cheney for war crimes, for torture? President Obama said, well, we did torture some folks, as he put it, but we have to look forward, not backwards, which means if you're at a U.S. official, you can commit murder or other illegal acts like setting up a worldwide global torture system and the government's going to look forward, meaning no accountability, which means impunity, which means others can do the same. If that sort of logic was applied to society as a whole, you'd have to make sure that every single person in prison was released because why not just look forward? But here's Bush committing all these crimes and impunity. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. And when I thought about it, you know, when I look at it in terms of the long view, I know that every U.S. president, practically every U.S. president that's presided over any war has committed war crimes, right? But what happened, I guess, for those of us, you know, like involved in, you know, actions against the war, you know, we could see in real time, you know, in our own lives that we could see this impunity happening. And I think it's had a real profound impact on, I know the way I view most of these issues around so-called law enforcement. So on the show Friday on, on the ground, you know, we played extended excerpts of testimony from these young gymnasts who were, for example, sexually molested by the former Olympics gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser. And a big part of their testimony was the fact that, yes, Larry Nasser has been tried and convicted and he has a long prison term, but there were FBI officials and officials of the U.S. Olympics uh, Committee and of the USA Gymnastics who have not been held accountable, even though they either looked the other way or they were fully responsible for not listening to these young women and girls and not taking the necessary steps to make sure that the abuse stopped when these first reports were made. And because they did not, at least 120 more girls and women impacted by this doctor, molested by this doctor, or raped by this doctor in the years after these first reports were made. I had a chance to speak to longtime activist Makani Temba about it. And, you know, you know, as black women, you know, listening to this, we're looking at how these officials who are paid by our tax dollars, you know, as part of this ramped up FBI budget and Homeland Security budget after 9-11, these people are paid making good money, but they can't even protect girls and women in this country. And not only that, they're not held accountable for their crimes either. And that's the link that I was trying to make because it's a crime to falsify a report by a victim. It's a crime to not do your job basically when it's your job to prosecute. And it's not just them. It's also Department of Justice. They weren't doing their jobs either, failing to prosecute. So we looked at that case, really wrenching testimony. Anyone can go back and listen to it on YouTube or C-SPAN of basically these young women giving their stories and basically either having them ignored or being lied to, being told that there was an FBI investigation going on when there was not one happening and their notes were just shoved in a drawer somewhere. So we talked about that case. And we also talked about the case of Rakia Young. This is a young mother in her 20s who was just awarded $2 million by the city of Philadelphia because after she mistakenly pulled near a Black Lives Matter protest last year, police smashed her windows out of her car with their batons, pulled her out of her car and beat her in front of her children. And then 
took her son, her toddler son, out of the car and then posed for social media posts with him, claiming that they were there, that they had found him wandering around during this violent Black Lives Matter protest in a lawless action and that they were just trying to protect this child. So anyway, the video of this vicious beating of this mother went viral. There were people there that could refute the account by the police who were telling lies. And apparently two police have been fired because of this incident in addition to her getting this money, but they have not been charged. You know, there's no charges against these police for beating this woman, her assaulting her and taking her child. You know, we talked about how the Denver activists were accused of so-called kidnapping because they had a rally outside a police department. Well, this is an incident of police actually taking a person's child out of a car and then claiming that they found the child wandering around. That's the actual kidnapping. So anyway, in terms of just lack of accountability, I think that the things that you all were talking about, it's created a whole for me, a whole atmosphere and a whole precedent for lawlessness by so-called law enforcement officials and people in these high positions of government. It's almost as if they do things, they commit crimes, and we're either supposed to forget them, just like we're supposed to forget all the people dead, murdered, forget all the people tortured, just like you said last week about the Afghanistan family that they killed after the attack at the airport in Kabul. And it turns out that the family was just civilian families carrying canisters of water for their home. You know, not bombs or anything like that, not connected to ISIS. So we're supposed to forget about all these things and or look the other way, just like they look the other way. And that's created just a real crisis of conscience, of consciousness. And it's like the American public is constantly supposed to be gaslit by this corrupt system. Yeah, very, very important points, Esther. I want to go on now to time is running short. Real quick, because we wanted, even though Walter, who is the editor of Liberation News, isn't with us this week, he'll be back next week. We do have a couple of stories that we want to mention from Liberation News. But let's go to our second last story. The Nabisco strike, which we've talked about on this show, has ended. The union members have approved a new contract. What happened? Right. We mentioned the Nabisco strike and the strike has ended and the union members have approved a new contract that will give them many of the things that they were fighting for. The strike began in Portland and it spread to facilities in Aurora, Colorado, Richmond, Virginia, Chicago, Illinois, and Norcross, Georgia. And so the new contract will provide a raise each year of the contract, higher company match to 401k contributions, a $5,000 ratification bonus, and the company Mondelez will not be able to offer a lesser healthcare plan to new employees, which is what they were trying to do, how they try to split new hires away from like legacy workers and you know, give new workers like a lesser plan, which brings down the quality of healthcare for everyone. So those are some of the things that they won. Mondelez was able to keep some of these long shifts that workers were protesting, but what they did is they created almost like a weekend shift, a separate set of workers that will work just on the weekends and have these long shifts on the weekends. So, but other than that, the workers for Nabisco are declaring victory and it's a real victory for them, not taking these draconian cuts and other measures that Mondelez was trying to make in the middle of the strike when Mondelez had made out like bandits during the pandemic, you know, when everyone was home eating snacks. (laughs) So anyway, good for them. And, you know, right on to the Nabisco workers. All right, Esther, let's finish up. What's the latest that you want to bring to our attention from liberationnews.org? Well, we don't want to forget that coming up this weekend, Friday, September 24th through Sunday, September 26th, all over the country, people are taking part in three days of action to stop all evictions. And there are three main demands of this event for Congress to pass an indefinite moratorium on evictions that covers 100% of the country, not just these cherry-picked places where the pandemic might be spiking or not spiking or, you know, however they 
are terming it, that authorities at all levels dramatically speed up the distribution of already allocated renter relief funds, which we spoke about earlier, and for Congress to cancel the rents and wipe out all rent and mortgage debt accumulated during the pandemic. So these actions are being put together by Cancel the Rents, and their website is canceltherents.org. There are events all over the country, and so people can go to canceltherents.org to get involved and to find out more information. All right, and I really do want to encourage our listeners, go to liberationnews.org. It's a great site. It's got new material every day. It not only has assessment and analysis, it's you know activists who are in the trenches, in the front lines of many, many battles. I'm looking at an article, pro-choice activist arrested at Manatee County Commission meeting. That's in Texas about abortion rights. Anyway, liberationnews.org. That's all the time we have. You're listening to The Socialist Program. Be sure to become a patron, a subscriber. We'll have on Wednesday our monthly seminar where we'll talk with patrons about the issue of the Afghanistan war and what comes next for the U.S. anti-war and socialist movement. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.